naivety and the, and the freedom of of belief, the 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 non-pollution of not focusing on what isn't possible, not focusing on focusing on what is possible and believing that, and not focusing on what isn't possible and believing everybody else, right? That's pure and beautiful and should be encouraged and. And people should focus on that a lot more because it's only over time that you start to put the barricades up because whether it's for your own your own insecurities or listening to other people or second guessing yourself or all these things come later but in that pure stage when i was young and i look back in my athletic career i never saw a hurdle or a barricade in anything i thought anything was possible Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a four-time world triathlon champion, successful entrepreneur, and one of the smartest brains in the sport industry. Born in Sydney, Australia, to a New Zealand mother and an Australian father. He graduated from the University of New South Wales, Australia, with a bachelor's degree in economics. With a win rate of greater than 76%, he has won more than 250 triathlon events around the globe since 1993 when he switched from running to triathlon. He won the coveted Hawaii Ironman World Championships in 2007 and 2010, as well as the 1997 ITU World Triathlon Champs and 2012 ITU World Long Distance Triathlon Champs. Alongside his phenomenal sporting career, he has also led some of the world's most exciting sport projects, including Tanyapura, Bahrain Endurance 13, and most recently co-founded the game-changing Super League Triathlon. The Mackinac Foundation was established in honor of his mother, Teresa McCormack, to help fight against breast cancer. As an entrepreneur, he established Macarex, an integrative platform to give athletes of all abilities the chance to learn from the world's best, and also Mink Group, where he consults on a world-leading integrative projects. I'm honored to have the privilege to present to you a man who knows how to win, is a pioneer in the sports industry, has a New York best-selling book, I'm Here to Win, and is the life of the party, Chris McCormick. Chris, welcome to the show. Oh, good to see you, my friend. You make me sound old. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, wow. Was like a, oh, we're going to take it. Seems, it seems like an eternity ago, all of those things, but yeah, it's good well, to be on. Well, we're here in Cronulla, and we'll kind of go back, we'll go back a few years. And so you grew up in this part of the world and attended Kirawi High School. What was life like growing up in the Shire and what did you aspire to be as a young kid? Actually, it was, you get to really appreciate where you grew up when you don't live here anymore and you get to come back and visit it. And, you know, I think when you turned up today, I was saying, oh, look how beautiful it is. I always sell the Shire. And, and it was a beautiful place to grow up. Very, very different. It was the last beach in Sydney, south of Sydney. So... In the early 80s, it was a lot quieter than it is now. Australia's really grown up in the last two decades, but this part of the world was very, very quiet. It was a um, very, very sports-driven part of Sydney because there's a lot more space. We have the National Park, which is the biggest national park in Sydney um, that goes all the way down to Wollongong. There's beautiful running trails, you know, great beaches here. So anyone who was in the endurance world tended to 
to blossom in this part of the world. And there were so many great former stars, former athlete stars that you were able to access it in a very easy way. So for me, I think I was very, very fortunate. My father, as you mentioned, my father grew up in the eastern suburbs, but my mother was a Kiwi. So they met and decided to move their family to the south of Sydney. Um, at the time, my dad thought it was the biggest mistake of his life. It was too quiet down here. Um, but now I can never get him to leave. So I think growing up here, I was very, very blessed. Anyone that grew up in, in the Sutherland Shire in the 80s, south of Sydney, would say it was a, a remarkable place in the world to grow up. Yeah, well, it's definitely got some beautiful vistas here and you know, enjoyed kind of seeing the bit of a sunset this evening as well, so very lucky. What was the why to going off to University of New South Wales to study economics? Well, I guess my, my father was a, a waterside worker. My mother was a school teacher, but my father had no education. So I'm, a, I'm the middle child of two brothers, an older brother and a younger brother. And I guess growing up, all I remember was a, a, a complete and utter drive, really led by my father on education. He was determined that his three boys were going to get the start in life that I don't think he thought he had. He was working at the age of 13. His father was a truck driver. So he, was, he worked his butt off, really, to, to make sure... We went to school, excelled at school, got tertiary education, all these things. And at the time, I used to think my dad was a real grouch and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and just very, very hard on us. But he achieved that. All three of his sons graduated from university. And, uh, and for me, I guess, I always knew I was going to university. I never, it was never off. It was never something I didn't discuss. A lot of families said, oh, how did you know you're going to go to university? It was just always on the table yeah, for me. Sure. So. Um, it was a matter of understanding what that was going to look like because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I don't think any kid at 16 or 17 really knows what they wanted to do. Um, and I just sort of fell into, into economics and I was good at mathematics, so I graduated with an accounting degree. And, uh, and for me, I, yeah, I just, I, 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 didn't, I don't think I really enjoyed that. Like, yeah. uh, I, you know, I, now I'm older and mature, I, I would like to do done different things, maybe in sports science space. And, but at that point in time, you just sort of rush through school, you achieve the best you can. I was running through school, I was quite good at, at athletics, but to some degree, my father was, um, was a little bit, uh, you know, not too supportive of an athletics career. He thought it got in the sure. way of study until he realized that an athletics career could potentially pay for that study. He started to, to, uh, to support that. But yeah, I was, I'm, I'm, some of my best friends still to this day, and I tell this to my children, university for me was the greatest four years of my life. Um, I had a lot of fun, but I met some people that have, have my best friends, some of my groomsmen at my wedding, still our kids grow, have grown up together, I met at university, and, and it gave me the ability to, to step outside the Sutherland Shire, which was a little bit of a bubble, right? <laughs> when you grow up here, it was very Anglo-Saxon, very suburbs of Sydney, to step into the city and to actually live in there and go to university and, and be exposed to so much more, you know, exposed to different cultures, exposed to different people, exposed to different ways of thinking and, and ways of doing things. You know, I met my first friend at school that I ever met, I met the first gay person when I was at university. Yeah. I didn't even know being gay existed. So it was, uh, I really see that part of my life as a real growing up phase for me. And, and it was, I, I took a lot, not just from a study perspective from university, but a lot in becoming a man, I guess. I took a lot of the things, the qualities my father had taught me through high school, discipline and these things, but was able to apply a different different look at it. Yeah, definitely. So obviously, at while you were at the University of New South Wales, you are on a running scholarship, mm -hmm. and you met the late Sean Maroney. 
um, who convinced you to to make that switch to triathlon you know what was it about triathlon that fascinated both sean and yourself because sean was obviously a swimmer yeah sean was a Anyone from Australia knows Sean Moroney is the famous Moroney family. His sister, his twin sister, Susie Moroney, had the world, cha- world record for the English Channel double crossing, one of the greatest marathon swimmers Australia's ever had. She swam from Florida to Cuba. She was a very, very famous, especially in this part of the world in, in, uh, in the Southern Shire where they grew up as well. And Sean was a year younger than me, and I met him in my second year at university. Um, I knew him a little bit from around the traps from around the Southern Shire, he was quite famous and we became friends at a party by chance and uh, and he talked to me and we were talking about, we, we just sort of bonded on sport, you remember the year in 1988 was the Seoul Olympics, so we're talking about all the Olympic stuff, 1990, the Auckland Commonwealth Games, which was a Commonwealth Games in the Southern Hemisphere and so we were at this party in 91, 92 talking about the upcoming Barcelona, it was 91 because we're talking about the Barcelona Olympics coming up, we're talking about what had just happened in in Auckland at the Commonwealth Games, talking about the Seoul Olympics and and so we bonded over beers and at a party where everyone else was talking about everything but I was like mate this guy's just tickles where I itch you know this guy's just loves his sport and he asked me if I could swim and if I knew anything about triathlon and in 1991 Miles Stewart the current CEO of Triathlon Australia had just won the ITU World triathlon championships and um and an amazing sprint finish an amazing sprint finish against richard wells the kiwi and mike pig and um and from that party this is a true story i met up with sean the next day and he had a vhs video of that and that was a and when we put that vhs video of that race in the in his in his video player and i was like wow and i remember thinking i went 32 minutes for 10k i could do that and Mike, Sean was like, can you swim? I'm like, well, I surf. I can. And so we went down the beach and he said, you swim all right, you should do triathlon. Yep. And that was how I got into these discussions with triathlon. And I, I remember at the time feeling this level of guilt uh, with my running crew because I'm, I'm sort of talking about triathlon. And, and at that time, triathletes were always renowned for shaved legs and wearing speedos <laughs> and wearing sunglasses. And the runners were sort of very anti that. And I, I actually just, to be honest with you, it was Sean the energy of Sean and his, his charisma and the fact that I enjoyed his company to make me, yeah, okay, swimming with you. And then I ultimately fell into triathlon at the end of 91 and, and 92 I started, I was doing duathlons originally and improving my swim and, and, and did my first triathlon in 92. Yeah, so just kind of uh, go back to your, your career there coming out of university. So you became an accountant or you started in accounting. Yeah. So you're not there for very long and you, you cut it very short, obviously, um, before you even really got it off the ground. Uh, as triathlon bug becomes so much larger, how did your parents react to you quitting that career? That that you know, I suppose that solid foundation of, oh no, I've got a career in the finance world. Well, I think during university, I finished school, so university for me was basically ninety one until ninety four, ninety five. Okay. So in that period, I was a little bit independent. I wasn't living at home anymore. I was living in the city. I'd go home and see my parents and. Uh, I had the running scholarship and really my father was always still driving me on how the marks, how's the grades. And, and at that time I was working at, at Sizzler, um, <laughs> you know, so I was really balancing this university, typical uni student, no money, part-time job uh, and, and, and doing all, all the other things. And then as I started to get towards the end of uni, I was, uh, during uni actually, I was, I was coming across the triathlon. I'd, I'd done the World, the World Triathlon Championships in Manchester. I've been very, successful at that in 93 nearly nearly won that event and a lot of triathlon australia at that time came to me said who are you kid like 
you're a fantastic runner, we want to put you in this development program. Australia at that time in triathlon had a lot of money in development. And I, I guess that's the product we got to see for the many years after. Of the, the Cabri, the Cabri, Cabri Junior Elite yeah. program. And uh, I got put into this program under a, a guy called Rob um, Picard, who, uh, who was our coach. And they, they sort of pushed us into this, this program. And that was there that I saw a future in triathlon. I went to the Manchester um, World Championships in August of 1993. I opted to defer uni for six months, which my father was mortified about. <laughs> and I flew to France and started racing these club events in France. And I was a 19-year-old kid, right? And going, mate, this is amazing. And, uh, and talking to people over there and seeing the world, you know? Basically, I tell people, it sort of started the Shire. New South Wales Uni gave me Sydney. Triathlon gave me a view of the world and seeing there's so much more out there than Australia. And, uh, and I wanted to be a professional athlete at that point. So when I came back, I told my father that I wanted to go back and drop out of uni. He blew up, it's not happening. Made me quit triathlon to finish university. And so I did this 18 months where I was just doing races in Australia and I ended up graduating uni, took a job at Bankers Trust in the city and I was watching, pay TV came out in Australia, cable television at that time called Galaxy TV came out and I remember watching Greg Bennett and, and these guys that were in the junior team with me overseas racing these triathlons while I'm stuck in this job and I'm 22 years of age thinking this is my life. You know, like I, and these guys are in Drummondville and, and Craig Walton, I watched him race the Chicago event and Craig was a couple of years younger than me and, and I remember thinking, I've, I've never done anything. I've, I've been the perfect son. Yeah. You know, I've never got into trouble. I've, I've graduated <laughs> with, with good marks. I've got a job at Bankers Trust. I've got the per I was a good athlete and did everything, but I never really sunk my teeth in anything. And so I opted to, to you know, when I took this job at Bankers Trust, my parents were ecstatic. And my dad was like two kids gone. So my older brother was a lawyer, now me, I'm done. And um, now my focus on the younger brother. So I remember the elation that they had that, I guess for dad, the fulfillment that he felt that he'd, he'd achieved what he wanted to achieve, I guess it was the way you look at it. But for me, I was miserable. So I opted to quit my job and pursue a, a career, or pursue, not a career, I wouldn't call it a career, at that, pursue a dream in seeing the world through the eyes or doing what I wanted to do, but see the world that way. So I'd go back to Europe and, and ride up the Alps and race triathlons and, and just survive hand to mouth if I had to, win a few hundred dollars here and go to the next event. Because when you're young, you're, it's not about money or titles, it's about experiences yeah. and, and, and seeing how far you can go. And, and you don't really put any, I really, I had no expectations and I had no barriers. I didn't, I thought I could be the best in the world because I watched the Olympics. And I guess that's the, but coming from Australia, you can be relatively sheltered, sure. right? And that, I guess that naivety was also an asset because when I arrived in Europe and I quit my job, my parents were disappointed, but I talked them around and I flew to Europe with no money, nothing. And, and, and there's just this big dream to be a, to, to stay there as long as possible and, and win as many races as I could. I thought I could be the best in the world. Why couldn't I? Someone had to be. And that's sort of the attitude that you go in. So I wasn't polluted or corrupted with any any coaches saying no you can't or any any sports science saying this is your level it was just pure dreams and and ambition so that rawness of it you know obviously a lot of lessons learned in those early years yeah. um you learned a very harsh lesson in the finish line in 93 world champs where yep. you were in second place and uh we're cheering a bit too early and, yeah, yeah. and ended up fourth and then obviously 
you come back to reality at home where your parents go, no, you need to get a job. And so you got that job, but you realize how, hey, you know what, that's not where my passion is. What were the key lessons you learned at that point that now help you in the business world? I think, you know, you know I don't, when you look at it now, I think you, you go through this journey. I, I tell a lot of the, I tell my kids, I've got three children of my own now, that, that it sounds like such a cliche because I remember these people used to come to my school and stand up in front of the school and say, you can be anything if you put your mind to it, right? And, and I'm, I'm not saying that is, it's as simple as that, but it really is as simple as that. Like, and people go, oh, you can only say that because you were successful, but there was no guarantee I was going to be successful. Mm -hmm. I, I just truly believe that. Right, and, I, and I, I honestly don't think I was the most talented. I, I think I worked hard, I, I, I pursued what I wanted to achieve and I never let, allowed failure to, to, to dictate what I was gonna do next. I never, I never saw failure as a, oh, this is just not worth it, I'm going. I always saw, oh well, I was, I was always very easy to move on, okay, there's another race next week and, and that's the advantage of sport, that you've always got another chance. So I guess the lesson I learned you know, from those early years, because you learn, you know, now I'm not in sport, I can't take one part of my career and say, okay, that's the lesson I learned. But I guess the lesson I learned, if you have to look at those early years of my careers that I apply now, is that naivety and the, and the freedom of, of belief, the, the, the non-pollution of not focusing on what isn't possible, not focusing on, focusing on what is possible and believing that and not focusing on what isn't possible and believing everybody else, right? That's pure and beautiful and should be encouraged and, and people should focus on that a lot more because it's only over time that you start to put the barricades up because whether it's for your own, your own insecurities or listening to other people or second guessing yourself or all these things come later. But in that pure stage when I was young and I look back in my athletic career, I never saw a hurdle or a barricade in anything. I thought anything was possible. And that's the biggest, you know, biggest issue or biggest limiting factor for people is that fear of failure, fear of judgment and fear of what, what I actually really can do. So it's great to hear that, you know, and you hear that a lot from successful people is they didn't have that. Like it was that, that pureness, as you say, it yeah, was just like get out and have it, a crack. It's, it's actually pure because of course you, you, you know, and I, sometimes I think it's the naivety of youth too for me. I'm like, because now I'm a lot older, I find myself questioning a lot more than I would have when I was a 22 year old Chris McCormack. Now I'm like, oh, is that a good idea? Is that? And sometimes I think, yeah, it's just more experience now. You can do it, but I encourage people to to not put that framework around their dreams yet. Let the frame frame itself up with time. Live that freedom. You got to you got to stay focused on what it takes to be good. But live that freedom and live that belief. And if I take anything away, I do that now. And I guess that's why you call me an entrepreneur. I I do that. People go, that's a stupid idea, and I, well, I'm doing it anyway. Like, someone's got to do it. If it's a stupid idea, who cares? Like, what, there's no punishment. How do you know it's stupid yet? Yeah, but there's no. That's what I, I find quite difficult with people when they go, that's a dumb idea. I'm like, it's not as if you get punished if it fails. You don't get whipped and go to jail for the rest of your life. It just doesn't work. So there's no. I don't understand why you wouldn't make that step or why you wouldn't try. And that's where I think that's what I've taken from sport. That trying is better than not trying. By entering the event and having a go at winning. You're never going to be a champion unless you're in the race. So go for it. Like you're never going to be successful in business unless you start the business. You're never going to. So that's really the attitude that I think sport taught me that there is no real failures. There's just, you know, they always say a couple of setbacks, but there's just like, okay, that didn't work. Hmm, but maybe I learned that and I'll do this. So. 
the triathlon in the 90s was you know full of characters you know people had personas to burn um, there was drama there was many pioneering races it was really made for tv and you know it, it, it was really it allowed triathlon to really excel in that environment at that time what was it like for you being right in the part of that sport you know right in the mixer and and kind of up there with it with all the big names and the tv and the bright lights when triathlon was really growing fast I was very, very lucky. I think I lived through the golden, by chance, by just by birth year uh, and, and by falling into the sport. I think we saw the, the, the greatest years of the sport, I think monetarily, I think fame-wise, I think all these things between that mid-90s period until the early millennium, that 10-year decade was just remarkable. It was, it was the beginning of the Olympics. We just got in the excitement of that. The, the Ironman brand was starting to, to mushroom and take off. People were starting to be intrigued by multi-sport racing. And, you know, I tell the story, I remember in the late 90s getting on aeroplanes saying, sitting next to someone and they'd ask me what I did. And I'd say, I'm a triathlete. And people like, what is that? You, you just don't have that conversation. Everybody no, knows a triathlete yeah. now. So there was this element of rawness and wow attached to, you do that? That's incredible. There was a, which is a sort of, being i guess sanitized now to some degree yeah. it's very common now so because of that there was so much new energy and money and and events and 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 characters as you said coming in because we're all fighting to to be recognized in a in a in a, in a sport that was growing up going through its adolescence so I, that was amazing i think some of the most amazing characters the most amazing athletes the most amazing businessmen came through that sport at that period of time and what you see now is a very streamlined Olympic and corporate sport in Ironman and, and ITU racing that's come off the back of a lot of those very, very strong people. But to, to go through that, that youthful stage, it's like it's like dating the supermodel when she was her hottest, you know? It's, it was the best. It was, un, it was unreal. It was, it was really, really cool. And I, you know, I, the racing was magnificent, the, the lessons learned, and, and the, the people that I met that were so influential on my life you don't realize it at the time because you're, you're very consumed in, in achievement and and consumed in swimming, biking, and running, and being better in that world. But meeting people on the way and keeping them in your in your in your network and your team and 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 realize how important they're going to come become later in your life as you as you mature, you have children, you move out of the sport. Um, it was remarkable. So, who did you grow up idolizing in the sport? You know, who who did you whose picture was up on the wall or? Yeah, or the my, poster was on your wall, and, and what intrigued you most about them? My, my, my absolute sporting idol as a kid was Robert DiCostello um, and Marco Calippo, who was a local surfer here, but in, in, the, in the endurance world space, Deke, and just after Deke, Steve Monaghetti, who I now call a friend. It's just an honor to, I was texting with him the other day going, and I was telling my kids a funny story because the 89 London Marathon is on, you know, the London Marathon's on the 28th of this month, and Mona's put out a tweet. And I'm like, oh, Mona's, I remember sitting up in 1989 watching you. He's like, oh, you remember that? I'm like, dude, you ran, you ran 20906. You know, like I, they were my idols. I just wanted to be Robert DiCostello and Steve Monaghetti in a small nation like Australia. It's probably like the John Walkers in New Zealand. They, 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 they took on the world in, in, in what I perceived as the most competitive sport in the world, in, in athletics, in running, and they did it. They won world championships. Monas not Madik won a, a, a 1983 won the world championships in the marathon, and probably and, the toughest time in sport oh, too mate, when you yeah. had the the Germans the and Ger the Eastern Europeans yeah, and right. Russia. 
they were gods and 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 they were my they local heroes but on my wall above my bed was a big picture of boston marathon of robert Costello, and directly next to that was the 1984 1500 meter olympic gold medal of sebastian coe who was those two men epitomized everything i wanted to be as as world beaters in in running i wanted to be a runner and and Moniz was just a young guy that came along who was very open and, and you're very very I was very, very lucky that not only were they two superstars, they were two superstar human beings. I remember meeting both those gentlemen as a young junior and stopping them, and they gave me time. You know, still they still give you time. They're, they're amazing yeah. people. Like, those two people could have crushed my joint. Had they, uh, excuse me, Deke, can I get a photo? Yes, and he sat there, talked to me. For, had he just walked off? He could have killed the enthusiasm of the... But I remember looking at this man, oh, you are a man. And then the next champion in, in, in Monas sat there and gave a, a junior punk like me, a 15, 14-year-old kid, time. And that does so much. It does beyond, it's, it's immeasurable. And, and those, those were without question my sporting idols. And, and as I moved into the triathlon space, I started, you know, obviously loving the, the Australians and the success of the Australians. But I was very, very intrigued on the Ironman. It I really resonated me, maybe because the marathon always resonated with me as a runner and uh, watching you know Mark Allen be so successful in those years in the 90s and that whole era and and uh, Greg Welsh in that period of time Greg Welsh grew up in the Sutherland Shire in my athletics club so I was able to put a finger on people you know be able to go they, they weren't just pictures on a wall I was able to meet them and touch them and and realize they're real people and I guess that's where you get the when I said earlier about not having a fear of of, of achievement because when you take them from being a superhero and you see them as human beings and they're so normal, you think, well, wow. They break down that, that aura about themselves and they become human and you think, well, I'm human. If they can do it, I can do it. And that, that means a lot to a young, young yeah. person. I think that was the, the, the key thing that, that they, they brought so much influence in my career that is immeasurable because they never killed my enthusiasm or killed my dreams by being jerks. But they just encouraged it by being themselves, and that, that that's amazing. Let's fast forward a couple of decades now, and so who do you kind of look up to from a business point of view? You know, the successful leaders in the business space. You probably don't have their posters up above your your bed anymore, but yeah. <laughs> who do you look to there? Oh, I've got a a, a friend, a a person I call a very close friend, a guy called um, Tony Pritzker, who um, who I've known now since I met Tony in two thousand and one. Um, in Ironman, I had no idea he was a very, very successful businessman. Um, we, we bonded on triathlon and we've become peers and friends and, and he's been a, a mentor to me more than anything. Uh, and it's not as if I ring him up and say, Tony, how do you do this? But now I'm out of the sport and I, I get to look, uh, in the same way you look at sport, I guess, I, I, I look at what he's done and then I start to reflect, in 2001, Tony, you were 32. And you did that deal, that, wow! You know, you start to appreciate <laughs> yeah, sure. just how, how amazing they were within their world. He just, and what he's continuing to do. So I, I really look up to him in a lot of ways. He's in a different realm now. He's, he's dropped out successful businesses. Now he has big funds and runs his own world. So I like, I like everything he's doing. But another close friend of mine who I met, and you know quite well, Chris, Chris Parker, he's become a very good friend. To hear his story, and now to see how he operates is, is remarkable. It's a story of exactly like mine in sport, exactly like anybody's. You have an idea or you have a dream, 
you 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 don't know if it's going to happen, um, but you throw everything at it, and 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 you enjoy the journey. I think enjoying the journey is key. You know, it's it's going to be stressful and you, and there's going to be times where you love it and times where you hate it, but you you get engulfed in it. And he's come out the other side, and it's been a hugely successful business, and he's been able to expand you know, diversify that business into multiple facets, you realize there's an element of intelligence that comes with success and learning that you've learned on the way. Because he'll tell you stories like, dude, I wasn't, I wasn't the smartest guy in my school. I wasn't the, but you le- I was able to learn on the run and, 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 and learn the facets of what made this business I did very, very successful and realize it could be applied to other businesses, which he successfully done. And you know, to go from zero to more multiple billions of dollars is no no easy feat. So they're two guys I really respect, and I guess I have the luxury of knowing them. Mm. Um, so outside of that, I don't really, you know, I, lo- I love you know I love everyone loves the stories of of Facebook and loves the stories of, of Amazon and, and these things. They're amazing stories, but to some degree, I can't relate because I'm not in the tech space, right? Mm. So actually, my business partner is a big tech investor, so. I don't. I, I like. I like the the hard luck story. The mm. the the guy from nothing who has a vision of his own and 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 makes it. And a lot of those stories are that. But um, I, I I find that in Chris and and Tony in particular. So you're extremely competitive, but also one of the most resilient people I've ever met. You know, what kind of character traits do you think have allowed you to get the train back on the track, so to speak, and and also take what you do to a whole new level in a business world? Well, I think I, I always realized, you know, we mentioned it before the podcast, I always realized that sport had a had an end, had a, had an end point. I guess the, the luxury of business people over sports people is as you age, you actually make more and you become more successful. In sport, as you age, you fall off, yes. right? So you, 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 you expire very, very quickly. And I, I don't think a lot of sports people, there's a lot of talk right now around, you know, people transitioning out of sport into business or transitioning in life and they find it very, very difficult. And I don't think there's a lot of focus on, on, the, on the reality that you have a finite amount of period of time. And a lot of these kids are like, oh, I'll do this. And you know, your butt's not going to age like wine. And so I always knew that. And, and my father was always drilling that into me. So there was a level of, and if I have any regrets, I guess, on the sports side was, there was always an element of, of desperation on my end as an athlete to pursue business interests within the sport over, later in my career in particular, over potential titles that I probably, hmm. that it'd be nice to sit up on my wall now. Now, they're just a title I'm going to bang my chest about now, but it's sort of like, oh, I should have probably gone and won the Olympics. Like, I should have done that, but it didn't commercially make sense to me. So a lot of my decisions, driven from the back of my father, because he was always saying, 12 years, son. It's all you've got in this sport, 12 years, 12 years. You're gonna make 12 years last 40 years. And it was probably, God love my dad, the wrong advice, right? Mm-hmm. Because I lasted longer than that, but there, there should have been an element of, of, of less desperation or less less eagerness to, to make business decisions in that sense. And um, now, now I'm in the business world, you realize that you have time, a lot more time, and doing it properly and, and not making those same mistakes I made is key but you just have to have the same courage to pursue those dreams, you know. And I found, I said to you before, I found a lot of my peers that I had so much respect for as athletes, and so much respect for in the way they prepared for events, the way they were courageous in selecting their events, 
going after it, the way they raced. You learn so much about another competitor when you go to war with them in a race. You learn about their character, their, their courage, their, you know them better than, than their wife knows them. Really, <laughs> you, 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 like the respect I have for some of these guys because I'm like, you're a tough, strong, powerful man. That you, but they, they walk out of sport and they're such feeble, and I've never, I couldn't understand it because I just thought it was, a, it was a mindset. For me, it was always a mindset, but it's obviously not a mindset. There was a level of physicality that they took in. There was a level of, I don't know what it was, but it was for me, I found it very easy to apply that in in another space. And I felt a little bit let down by my peers that they were a lot more negative on this side of the fence, or a lot more timid in pursuing that same sort of mindset. In, in and like I remember dropping the ideas of Super League to some of my peers at the time, they're like, that'll never work, that's ridiculous, that's a stupid idea, what are you gonna do that for? Why not? It's supposed to be great to us, let's let's try and create a, a professional ecosystem for the next generation. Why not? We've, we've got our contacts, we know the sport pretty well, we're, but I remember that everything, every time I put an idea out there, and I always saw, saw, saw ideas as the same as putting out a, a race, a race schedule as an athlete, it was always shut back down, but if I put a race schedule out when I was at the peak of my career, everyone would go, good idea, great event, oh, beautiful race. You know, oh, you're gonna love that. Everyone seems more open to accepting what you say when you're already successful than, you know, and I, I found that very, very difficult. But I, I, I applied, I think, I, I applied um, in that transitional period, I think, I, I found the transition relatively easy because I'd, I'd prepared for it for a long period of time. Even during my racing career, I prepared to retire I'd already set post London. I tried to go to the London Olympics and I moved to Tanyapura where we met and uh, started running that. I saw the opportunity there and, and I had the opportunity to do a little bit of racing as I transitioned out into the business world. But there was always a, an exit and, uh, that, I, that I put in it because I knew my butt wasn't gonna age like one. I was in my mid forties, like I'm, you're getting old. You can't compete with the youth. So I never found the transition that difficult and, and I just apply the same principles I did in sport in this world and I failed at a lot of things in the business world, a lot. But I don't, I, I couldn't even tell you what they are anymore because I've forgotten about them. I've used that failure to move to something else. And I, I, I feel disappointed that a lot of my peers haven't done that for whatever reason. I'd love to talk to them about it one day. So many athletes try and do it all themselves. Mm -hmm. And we also see this with CEOs. And more often than not, they struggle to fill their, their real potential. So you learned very early on that you needed to be a CEO of your triathlon career and, and build a team around you that knew more than you did. Uh, how did you balance being a CEO of the athlete Chris McCormick and handing over the leadership to the team when it really mattered? I think the best, the, the, the way I did that because I did it, I remember I made a decision um, early in my athletic career, not so much early, in my early short course racing days, I, I used to win through, I guess, power and talent. Then I, I really struggled with this transition in Ironman racing. And it became a, an Achilles heel for me. I, I expected to win the Ironman in Hawaii. The minute I did it, I won everything else. Why wouldn't I win Hawaii? And it took me five years to win this race. And during that five year period, which now you talk about five years, it's like a flick of the finger, but when you're actually living five years, it's a long period of time. I made the decision that I wanted to be the dumbest guy. I was always the smartest guy, right? You know, I always believed it. But I wanted to build a team of people around me and I wanted to be the dumbest guy in that room. So when I had a nutritionist, I wanted, to be, I wanted him to be the best nutritionist I could possibly have. I wanted a strength and conditioning coach. I didn't want the second best. I wanted the best. 
And I, I, I remember vividly being in Hawaii on a training camp. I had a friend of mine, Michael Gilliam, who'd been in my life my whole life. I had Helen McGuckin, who was my running coach, who had brought another running coach with her from um, Africa, a guy called Sean Tomps, um, who was a brilliant um, technical running coach. I brought um, Nick Gates and Stuart O'Grady across from cycling, and I had this team, and I, and I helped them. I remember sitting there, um, and I had a, a sports psychologist, in a, Dr. Susan Krafner, um, and I remember sitting in this room, and these people, they were talking, and I didn't have a clue what they were saying, and I remember vividly going, perfect, this is the perfect <laughs> team for me, because they're smarter than me, and, and I'm immediately going to listen to what they say, and, I'm, and, and the decision for me right then and there was, honesty is everything, no prima donnas. We everyone's opinion matters. Um, we work collectively together. We're not. There's no. If you if your idea ultimately leads to success, I don't pat you on the back more than I pat her on the back. This is a team, and and we immediately saw success. I brought Mark Mark Allen in, and, and it wasn't just me making those decisions. I remember people in the team going, "Why don't we consult with the person who's done this in the past?" Great idea. Yeah. Get one over here. Mark Allen came in and gave these. Like, and that was when I realized I always wanted to be, when I migrated into the business world, the dumbest guy in the room. Not the dumbest, but I, I believe you can, if you're, as long as you're the puppet master and you can coordinate these really intelligent people, that's the best way to run a business. Yeah. And, you know, and I just used to sit there and, and say nothing and listen, listen, listen. I'm always of the opinion, you only talk when you know something. So if, if you're not talking, you actually learn more because you're listening to people who do know stuff. So if I found if I was talking too much in a meeting, that I was actually probably, I probably knew too much or I wasn't allowing the flow of information that I needed because ultimately the benefactor was me. So I, I applied that in business when we went to Tanyapura. We tried that we built a great team of people around us because it was a remarkable project. And you, you try and build, bring the best in and, and do those things. And ultimately when we went and started doing work with the Royal Family of Bahrain, I had the luxury of employing who I wanted. That, that team now has gone on to have a Tour de France team, we've got a triathlon team, and we've just acquired McLaren. I know nothing about car racing, but I don't need to know. I know, I know a little bit about cycling, but I just got Milan and these guys who grew up in cycling to run these teams. So it's, it's been a, a very, very easy thing to do because I don't want to be the smartest guy in the room. And all I need to do is coordinate the smart people and, and, and share that success. And everyone builds from that culture that is, uh, you know, everybody loves to, be successful and if the team succeeds that culture feeds a, a winning culture so 2007 it finally happened and and you finally cracked the golden egg I suppose kind of uh, so to speak and, and you, you've been struggling for so long to get there but 2010 everyone had written you off uh, but you still knew you had more left to go you know, this race for me was one of the most memorable races probably outside the Iron War of Dave Scott and Mark Allen in 1989. Not only did you spell out with absolute minute detail how you're going to win, you executed with absolute precision. Why did you approach the race in this manner? I think, yeah, to appreciate 2010, you've done it right. You have to look at 2007. You know, I'd been, what, sixth, fifth, second, first right and and i had this war in 2007 and 2006 and 7 with a german a guy called norman stadler who was who won two titles himself and finally you win and it's a lifelong ambition you've been wanting to do it for your whole life and you achieve it and then you spend the next period of time 
for the next year setting up all the partnerships that you know you try and find you try and commercialize that success right so you know you i got engulfed in that and suddenly it came around in 2008 and there's a new champion craig alexander who's australian who has been a training partner of mine for more than a decade and uh, i was like wow I'm, I'm no longer the champion so it took you so long to get there then it's gone right but i in 2008 i didn't finish the race had a mechanical so i I, and, and I knew the winner very, very well. I'd trained with him my whole life. So I was like, ah, I'll win in 2009. I'll come back now. I've got all my sponsors in place. 2009, I'm going to kick his butt. So I came back in 2009 and Craig beat me fair and square. One of the first defeats I'd ever had from Craig in that big an event. And now Craig, who lives in the Sutherland Shire, where we grew up together, has got two titles, I've got one. And not only that, he's only been to Kona four times. I'd been seven times, and he's got two and I've got one. And I'm like, and, the, and he's also got second, he got second to me in 2007. So I'm like, far out, you know? Like, and, and it's amazing how everybody in the sport was like, new hero, new champion, Mac has forgotten, this guy's unreal, you know? And he's the new superstar. And I'm like, well, hang on a sec. They were talking about him like he was a 20-year-old kid. I'm like, we're the same age. Hang on a sec. We've raced our whole life together and he's beat me like five times in his life. Like, hello, but you don't want to be too disrespectful because he's a peer. But I was a little bit, I'll be honest, a little bit agitated that, you know, that there was a new superstar, but I didn't believe he was as big a superstar, which he is. But I mean, I, I, I'm like, I'm still a superstar as well. Like, look at me, <laughs> look at me. Yeah, ego. It. I guess it is. It's, it's 100% egos. And, and the sport shifted and I felt, I, I, at that time, I was like, wow. You, it takes you so long to get there and so quickly you've forgotten, you know? And I was like, oh, I won't forget that. And so I just looked at the reality and I realized that people fall in love with the myth. People fall in love with the romance. People fall in, and everybody wasn't looking at the facts, right? Like that 2009, I had a, my career worst swimming Kona. I was actually fastest on land, fastest by fastest run, but I lost the race by two minutes and 45 seconds from Craig Alexander. I lost four and a half minutes to him in the swim. Never have I lost four and a half minutes to Craig in the swim, ever. I always got out of the water with him. And so I started going, okay, let, let everyone be groupies. And that's what I, say, I used to say. People watch, they, people watch res, results, not races. Right? I let them all be groupies. And I, as you said, I, I claim this is how I'm going to beat the guy because this is how I beat him my whole life. I'm going to alienate him on the bike. I'm going to deliver a big run, make him do this. So when I won in 2010, by executing what I'd done multiple times in, in my youth with Craig, as I said, he wasn't, we're the same age. Everyone thought I was a genius. I'm like, no, you guys just didn't study for the, you know, it's like you didn't do your research. <laughs> like, I'm like, and I remember sitting vividly in the, in the, in, after the race, and I won, and everyone's like, I can't believe Mac has just come back. He's 38, he's won this event. And, and I said, you're never gonna see me in Canada again, I retire. But I, I remember sitting in the press conference and all these people, the, all the press were sitting there. And guys are sitting there going, Mac, that was the greatest race I've ever said. You're incredible, I think. I said, no, 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 but in May, you wrote in Inside Triathlon that I'm this, 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 and this. You're a groupie, mate. Sit down. And I, and I, got, my, I got my chance, which is probably why people thought I was, quite, I was quite rough. Like, I mean, you know, quite abrasive. But I, I really felt it was my time to, to teach these people a lesson on, I guess, being a little bit more journalistic in, in the way they look at things by looking at events. And, and, and Craig is, is one of the greatest of all time. 
but to, to just dismiss people so quickly. They did it with Norman after I came along. Yeah. Dismissed, forgotten. I'm like, well, hang on a sec. It's great Cause, athlete. Yeah, because when you go to war with these guys and you, you appreciate them as athletic, as, as men, like Norman Stadler is one of the hardest men I've ever gone to battle with. Like you, 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 you experience and feel things when you apply pressure to someone and you're in absolute agony and they respond with the courage that it takes to respond and you see them go through it. You know what it takes to do that, and you and, and you have this this scar of respect that will never go away because you're like, man, you're a tough man. And Craig Alexander is a tough, hard man. And a lot of athletes come out of that, and you end up being conflicted and not friends because you've gone to war so many times and you've inflicted so much damage on each other that you can't even deal with each other anymore. But for me, it was as much a, a process of, of of trying to teach the sport a lesson on being growing up a little bit and starting to appreciate that there is talent, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, like 10 layers down, and it's time to look at everybody and not just become a groupie and focus on everybody else. And and that was why 2010 for me was such a special race because I didn't do anything different and I beat a guy who was my age, or, or I ended up beating the next generation guy, but the, but Craig Alexander was a guy who was my age and, and people just weren't looking. So on that, you know, you're going to war how when you've gone now into the business world do you still finding find yourself going to war or are you able to kind of separate that a little bit because it is a bit different in the business world yes you've got to be competitive but if you go to war it's very challenging because it's really hard to define where you sit in the pecking order in a business world i i, I definitely think i um i have a level of I, I, and it must be an athlete because your whole life you've been at the top of the game in, in a sport and so you, you, you've always used to walking into a room and, and people reacting right and, and especially in, even regardless of what sport in your triathlon what I used to walk into any room and he's the champ so there's a level of a level of a pecking order that's automatically established when that's always been your status quo and I, I did find when I when I moved across to the business world I walked into those rooms expecting the same <laughs> to some degree, you expect the same the same reception. You know, hey, mate, how you going? Hey, like, who are you? You see people say, relax, you know? Like, I'm like, hang on a sec, you know who I am? But you're not that person in that world, right? So They don't all see you on the front of the wedding. Yes, spot. exactly. <laughs> They're the things. In, but I must admit, that level of confidence is important in the business world. So whilst, yes, I had to bring it into check, I also realize that, I didn't want to walk in as the, the weak. You want to walk in with that sort of semi-level of confidence. So I think I had the luxury of, of realizing that very quickly, but being able just to dumb it down a little bit and, and be a little bit more attentive, but still walking in CEO to CEO. That's how I sort of always thought it. And then it just comes down to connectivity. Um, is it competitiveness? Yeah, as I think it's, it's being able to pick your fights. It's, it's strategy. I think more than more than competitiveness, and so you apply the same principles you learn in sport. It's just how you apply your strategy in the business world. But you need to use your head more sometimes than being physical. And uh, but there's been times where I'm as ruthlessly competitive as I was on the field, and I'm gone, mate. Like it's and and you, you find you play the game. I, I actually I think I prefer the business world because there is so much more conversation, so much more strategy, so much more games around certain things within this world that um, that I thrive on. But I, I, I do believe I've been lucky that I was able to walk out of one sport. Some people see that as, an, as, a, as a huge negative. I've always seen it as a positive. 
as long as you can identify that because other people don't have that luxury. They've got to earn that respect or they feel like that because a human, you have to earn that respect. So to build that level of confidence takes a, a certain amount of time and it's hard, it's quite fragile, but I just sort of came in with it because I'd had it for so long, it just became my norm. And uh, it's hard to, to drop, you know, that norm, Just I just dumbed it down a bit and was, and was sort of sitting at the top of the tree and just talked as if I was supposed to be there. And before you know, people just accept you had been there. So it's interesting, you know, you, you're talking about, you know, for you being an athlete, you were, I think you built in some really good systems, obviously, while you were still an athlete. So you were able to transition really easily. Yeah. A lot of athletes really struggle in this space and they get hired for, you know, you've got great time management skills, you get a hard work ethic, etc. You're really good at planning. But when they go into the business world, they kind of forget all that and they just go, they're like a rat on, yeah, a, yeah, ferris, yeah. on, on a wheel and they just spin 100 miles an hour. And, and no, for me, I think it's kind of that they're so used to waiting until they feel that physical fatigue before they know when to slow down and recover a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, probably right. And, and I think when you get that psychological aspect, it takes a really, really long time to build up. It's so gradual, so you don't really feel it um, coming along and then it sneaks up and then bang, it hits you. So, you know, I think, how, how do you, I suppose, plan in recovery to ensure that you're not burning the candle at both ends as a now waiting for that kind of physical fatigue to kick in yeah i, I think yeah you know on, on this side of the fence i um you know i've been I've, i think i've been lucky that i've had good people around me I, and i and, and I, I actually i won't lie but there's been times where you know even when i've developed certain things like take super league for example i've opted to instead of leading it put someone who i believe should lead it in in, my, in place and, and be the puppet master from you know basically sit above as a as a an executive chairman or a president and work, working in a team team space and being able to split that that fatigue for both of us because in, in any startup the work ethic is out of this world the flexibility of it's exciting mm. some people can exist in a startup and some can't i thrive in them i love them right i, I love the dynamicness of them i love the flexibility and the decisions you can make that can take you from left to right in an instant um, I love the downs, I love the highs, and, and I, I think that's, that comes from sport, right? Um, but where I've always second-guessed myself in this space is when it does fall into the status quo, boom, boom, the consistency, right? Bing, 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 bing. What's that gonna look like for me? Because I've never had that. I've, I've always had highs and lows, bing, 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 and, I, and that's why I think startup works for me, and that's where I, selecting the right people has been, has been important. I think athletes struggle with that because as you sort of said is they've always had triggers that have have been their points like when this happens i know that i did this or this suddenly none of those triggers exist especially physically and uh, they've got to find them again and they don't they've earned that they've learned those triggers over 30 years of doing the same thing yeah. and, and what they haven't focused on is understanding how they found them in the first place and they've got to go back to basics and not and have the courage to not second guess themselves again because they didn't second guess themselves as athletes. So it's a matter of relearning and having the courage to do that. And for a lot of athletes, they're like, oh, it's too hard. It's not because you've got to ask questions of yourself that you haven't asked of yourself for a long period of time. You know, it's been all about, you're almost an Olympic champion. It's just been small improvements. Now I'm asking you to go back and and learn to do finger trail again if you're a swimmer. You know, We've like, got 10,000 hours to build 10, up again. Exactly, right? And, and, and they don't want to do that. It's, it's a too hard basket. 
and then they fall into these these normal traps of ah oh, mate someone else's fault right it's not me you haven't given me the chance this is not for me and and they get caught up on that wheel like you said of of excuses of thing instead of focusing on self-development and backing themselves and so i said it to you before it's where i second guess a lot of my peers i'm like you've got so much to offer you're amazing how are you not applying what i saw in you as an athlete what i saw in you as as your team as everything i saw this powerful entity this thing that i i dreamed about at night and fearful of and now you're a timid mouse like i don't understand it like i don't because high performance is high performance it, yeah that's it, how it i see it it doesn't matter whether you're a musician matter. an yes. athlete high performance a CEO, is high performance a gardener 100 and that's where i i, I get semi-frustrated i get and they just fall back into routines just patterns they're not even routines they're patterns that ultimately are going to see them basically get back down the bottom of the hill because they just fall back in their training patterns or their and they just become athletes again and now they're 50 year old athletes and now they're masters athletes and and nothing ever happens but i'm like apply those same high performance principles that made you the best in the world when you're at your peak because right now you're in your business peak if you could just apply those principles right now it's like being in 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 being 25 again as an athlete you can be anything so talking about that so how would you describe a high performing ceo how would I describe a high performer? I think a high performing CEO is an amazing communicator. And communication is the fundamental key to success in any organization. A shit or a terrible communicator can do so much damage to, to an organization, it can do so much damage to a team. In, in, in. So uh, a high performing is a, is a fantastic communicator, is almost a therapist, right? Is almost understanding how to get they're more of the coach than they are the athlete yeah right and understanding that everybody reacts differently identifying the strengths and weaknesses of those people and learning how to get the best out of that person and it may be very very different to that person and that is a skill it is a unbelievable skill and then and layering and umbrellaing that with their vision their high performance vision and making those people in the ways they do it achieve that is that's a high-performing CEO, and as when you see one, you spot them a mile off. They are they're remarkable, and I and and, and the center of that, as I said, is communication because communication allows everybody to come together. Communications make sure you stay on track. Being able to reassess and look at things and 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 communicate that again, it's it's an art form, and great CEOs are masters of it. And I really think you know talking about that coach aspect, I really think athletes before they become a CEO should become a coach. Yeah, that's true. Because they're gonna bring themselves and flip that model around so they observe more than actually be in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It helps them a lot more. We all know smart people have great answers, but the best people ask great questions. So when was the last time you did something for the first time? Last time I did something for the first time? I think I do something for the first time all the time. I, I, um, what was something I did for the first time recently? I'm always, um, oh, I got in a helicopter recently, but I haven't done that for the first time. Last time I did something for the first time. It's a good question. I, I always feel like I'm doing things for the first time because I'm always coming up with these crazy, you know, my team will bring something together and go, well, this is what we need to do here, here, and here. I'm like, you know what? I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> let's, let's flip it, you know? And, but um, 
Geez, oh, you've stumped me. Something for the first time. I haven't done, oh, I got on a horse with my daughter. There you go, when awesome. I got back here this time, I, it actually wasn't the first time, it was the first time in 25 years, so it should have been the first time, but <laughs> she's got a new horse, and, and uh, I'm trying to encourage my, I've never been a really pushy parent in sport, but I always try to let my children fall into the sports they want to do, and, and, uh, and my eldest daughter's been into horses her whole life, and I've tried to, I didn't want to be my kid's little pony girl that's going to ride ponies, and then she's going to go to college and never touch a horse again, but she's really found herself out there, loves it, thrives on it, and now she wants to find a business and do her work in that space. And because of that, I, she, I, I said, look, you know, I, why don't we go horse riding together? So we went out today, or when I first got back this week, and I jumped on a horse. It was the most hilarious thing in the world for her, but uh, for me it was the most frightening thing I've done in years, but I tried to look cool like a dad's do, and, and that was fun. But it wasn't very anything productive, but I think it was just having the courage to to identify with my daughter and say, look, I'm very proud of what you do and I think you're remarkable and, and here, how can I be a part of that, right? And I'm prepared to jump on a horse and be frightened to death <laughs> to be a part of your vision because I'm, I'm proud of you. And did the horse relate to you? Yeah, yeah, it's my best. <laughs> didn't kick me off. I was scared to death. I had the biggest one too, Tyson. She's got two horses, but Tyson's a monster. I didn't even know how to get up and that was the big funny with all the girls. They're all, they're all half my size of girls and... Here I am, scared to death on this horse. What is the one question that you would love to solve? The one question I would love to solve? Jeez, these are hard questions. I wish you could The one question I'd love to solve. There's a lot of problems I'd like to solve. They're not questions. Um, but the one question I'd like to solve is, why isn't life fair? Great question. <laughs> why isn't life fair? My father's always said to me, life's never meant to be fair, but why? Why isn't it fair? Why we're all, yeah, that's the question I like to solve. Why isn't life fair? Like it. Yeah. Who has left the greatest impression on you and had the greatest impact on your career? Let's do this in two parts. One as an athlete and one now as a CEO. Was I, I think the greatest influence on my life, my career in every way, and it sounds like a cliche, is my dad. I never would never have thought that, but now I'm a father myself, I'm a lot older, and I can be really appreciative of his vision for us, what he went through to do that, what he sacrificed, which you don't appreciate as a kid, why he was grumpy when I did certain things, and why he was very determined that we did certain things, and and he was very successful with it, right? And, and it's just such a thankless job, right? Like a... And I never appreciated it. I never, I just got on with doing my thing. And, was, and now I'm like mid 40s. And I sit with my dad, I'm like, wow, you're an amazing man. Like you are an amazing man, selfless, all this. I would never be anything. I would never have, I'd never think the way I did. I would never have the education I did. I would never have had the career I did. I would never had any of these things if you didn't not only put me on that track, believe in it, encourage it not kill it off at mm. times that during that period felt like I, it i felt like <laughs> it right but now i realize why you know and at times there it was it was quite fearful but even when i opted to quit my job and go after it he never no he never he he, he told me what he thought he communicated he communicated with me yeah. son it's a big call i wouldn't do that if it was my but it's your life but remember bing 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 it's not going to last forever 
You've got a finite amount of time. If you're going to do this, you do it with all your heart. You don't second guess this. You know, there was always advice attached to it. At the mm-hmm. time, you're like, whatever, Dad. Like, just, I'm going. But now I look back at it and think, man, you approach things so right for someone who had no experience in it. Yeah. Like, at the time, you're, not a, you're a father for the first time when he had us. So I'm a father for the first time and only time, I guess. So he was learning as he went and he just did it so well. So he's a, he's without question, I've realized more and more the most influential person on in my life. And it's only now I've been relatively thankful of it because I've started to appreciate it and understand it, probably more understand it and appreciate it. Uh, on the business side of things, I, I, I really, you know, I have a, a, a good friend of mine, Andrew Murphy, who's been a friend now for about eight or nine years and and sort of met prior to, to retiring and became friends when we moved to Phuket and he's been very, very successful. But we're sort of both on the same trajectory, you know, like he, you know, we're both going through this business, this business period together with the same age and he's been very successful in his businesses and, and I've been able to share that success and I remember when he had nothing and then he's up and he's down and you know so I feel like I've been part of his journey with me and 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 we're both learning as we go so I've I found him more as a as a friend on the same trajectory and, and pathway and someone I've been able to talk to and go through this sort of like a peer in sport um then and he's been amazing in, in the sports world you ask the question of who's been the most influential or who do I is that's the question yeah like, just kind of influential or had the greatest impact on your career on your sporting career um, funnily enough, there's two people in the sports career, a guy called MG, who's probably my best friend. Um, he's had a, an amazing, he sort of acted like a big brother. He's a chaotic guy. Anyone who knows MG will laugh. He's, but he has got a loyalty and a heart behind his gruffness and he, his, his demeanor and some of the stuff he does. He's been the most loyal, giving person and he's quite intelligent in this space, so and and and, and helpful guy in my career. Um, he was amazing, and I think the other would be um, um, Susan Karafner. She was a sports psychologist I worked with probably for fifteen years. Now as a good friend, um, she, she. I grew up. She sort of sort of took the role of my mother more than anything. She's a lot older than I am. Um, she had no kids, so I was sort of a kid, her, her, her son to some degree, and she went through that whole process. I met her just after her, my mum had passed away, and we're going through this whole Ironman process. She'd been through the whole journey with me. She knows my kids. She came to my wedding. She's she's a part of my family, and she's someone I respect so much. She's such an intelligent woman. She has an amazing life of her own, and and I think when you look at the people that have influence on you, that there is a level of respect you have for them that goes above and beyond what they did for you. Yeah. you. You begin to respect them as people and, and, their, and appreciate their lives and appreciate their opinion from their point of view because it's not just an opinion that's so centered around you because there's a lot of people that give you lip service and tell you the most wonderful thing in the world. I've met thousands of them. Can't remember any of them. People that talk from their heart, not their head, and, and mean it are beautiful people. And those people in particular have been the most influential in my career. So you've shared some, some great learnings and some great ideas and, and ways for people to grow and evolve. 
how can people learn more about what you do and what would be the best way for people to connect with you if they're interested in learning more? Connect with me? <laughs> Give me a call. No, I'm joking. Uh, what I, yeah, so I guess yeah, it's follow superleaguetriathlon.com. That's what I'm doing now. I, uh, my website's still very athletic-based. Um, email, I'm on social media. Macanow, the Macanow, as you started, Macanow sort of became my social media call it name um, the Macanow Foundation was a foundation I started when I won in 2007 the Hawaiian Ironman my mother passed away of breast cancer in 1999 I met my amazing wife the same year and um, I have daughters of my own and I remember in 2007 watching you know I just won the Ironman Hawaii I told my mum on a deathbed I'd win that race I also told her I'd win the Olympics which I never did but um I remember looking at my two daughters playing. My, my youngest daughter was two, my, my Talia was six. And I remember being, despite being the happiest day of my life in Kona, it was also one of the saddest. And my mum couldn't be here because she was such a big fan of what I did. And it was at that point my wife and I decided we should do something to allow our children to know who their grandmother was. It wasn't about creating a big foundation or doing anything. We just said, let's do something engaging to bring our kids into understanding who their grandmother and what, how, how important she was in my life. And so that's how the Macanow Foundation, because now stood for not only women. So breast cancer, yes, it's a disease that women suffer, but I, I lost my mum, my mentor, my life, my brothers. We, my mum was our life. Like we were the quintessential mummy's boys. Like, and she was gone, 51 years of age, way too young. Like it broke my family. My dad was, like it just broke our family. And, um, and it, it's like a shattered glass. It never, never cleared up. It was, the glass still worked, but it was never that same perfection. And so we started the Macanow Foundation. I opted to raise $140.6, which is 140.6 miles in an Ironman, for every day my mum was alive. So she was a, we, we raised $2,735,375 because she was alive for 19,672 days. So if you multiply those two numbers together, and we worked that out sitting in Hawaii in Ironman with our two kids playing, my wife and I. So when we started raising money, that's what it was all about. And once we achieved raising almost $3 million, we, we handed it over to a, to a guy out of Florida that runs the Macanow Foundation now, and they still do small things in Florida. But for us, it was a family project. So the Macanow has always been my, my name on everything I am, Macanow on Instagram, Macanow on Twitter, all those things, because it, it, it represents that, it represents just everything I did in that space. So follow me on that. Um, so beautiful. So thank you very much, uh, Chris, for an amazing kind of interview here where we've delved into both your athletic career and your business world, the way you look up to your family and, and what they've given you, both um, previous generations and then obviously with your kids now, uh, the lessons you've learned from those battles when you're yeah. in war, from being an athlete and making really smart decisions, you know, surrounding yourself with people, not just going, all right, I can do this myself, which we see both in the athletic world and we see it in the business world as well. People think they can take on the whole world by themselves and generally they don't succeed. You need a team around you of people that are smarter than you, yeah. which I think is really, really great. You, I, I love the way that your career has kind of evolved and developed and that you've continually worked on your growth and development as, as a person, firstly, and then I think as an athlete and now in your career in, this, in, in the business world. And I look, really look forward to seeing where you 
go from here. And I know there's some really exciting times ahead and we're loving what we're seeing with Super League Triathlon. And I can see you continuing on for a few more years yet with some, some pretty amazing projects. So thank you very much for your time this evening. Thanks for having me, it's been a pleasure. This week's Active CEO Wellness Tip is leaders are teachers. Be a student of the game you're playing in. Practice more and always strive to be the best you can be. Focus on teaching those around you as that is where your learning goes to a whole nother level. We need to remember to never let the music die inside of you. You've got to continue to learn, find ways to continually evolve yourself, and the best way to do that is by teaching someone else because it makes you think about, makes you try and understand a little bit of, about that topic that you're gonna teach. And it's because it's important to you that you share knowledge that is gonna help someone grow and evolve in what they're doing. Remember, never let the music die inside of you. Leaders are teachers. That was a great interview with Chris McCormick, you know, four-time world triathlon champion. And we got a fantastic insight, not only to his athletic mindset, but also his business mindset and how he's been able to transition so easily from sport, being athlete, right at the top of his game, into business world where he had some background, but everything was really, really new. I loved when he spoke about that energy and that determination his father had to make sure that the boys had a great start in life and just wanted to make sure that they worked hard and they had direction and focus on their life. But Chris was determined. He knew that triathlon was the way he wanted to go and that was his passion. And he had this real inner belief that he could do whatever it takes to make sure he becomes number one in the world. He had the, the instances in his life where he had to think about and evaluate what he was doing. He was ensured that he didn't have too many expectations or barriers on himself, so he just felt really free. He wasn't polluted or corrupted, as he said, by any of the coaches or what the sports science was saying or what someone else was telling him. It was just pure dreams and ambition. We talked about the naivety and the freedom of belief. We also talked about the importance of thinking anything is possible. We delved into then into who is who made a major influence on his life, and he talked about the likes of Rob De Costello and Mark Opalupo, Steve Monaghetti, and Sebastian Coe in the athletic world. And then we went on to some of the people he learned who he met a little bit later on in life that had a huge influence on the way he works and I suppose that direction he takes in the business world. And one of those was Tony Pretzka. And the other one was Chris Parker. And it showed that it wasn't, they didn't have everything so much to start with, but they were so determined to make something of it and have been extremely successful. Chris also, you know, he when he he already had that mindset that he needed he had that there was an end game to the sport world. There was an end game to being an athlete. And he did to make sure that he was able to transition really easy into the business world. And he started establishing that very early on in his career. And that's actually probably a big step ahead of most athletes that kind of get to the end of their sporting career and don't know what they're gonna do next. 
I love the fact that he ensured that he needed to be the dumbest person in the room and he wanted to build a team that had a lot of specialties and that knew so much more and he could just be that puppet master. And he did that both as an athlete leading into the 2010, uh, sorry, into the 2007 Ironman World Championships and 2010 and then also now there's in the business world. Very, very clever approach. He talked about that kind of that the going to war and that battle and how he still has that and he still he how he realizes that he needs to step up and play that high performance game in the business world. He has had many great influences as we spoke about before, but his dad has a, had a phenomenal effect on the way he has approached life and the direction that it's taken. He realizes now that it's not such a it's such a thankless job being a parent and you kind of wonder why he was always a grump and why he did certain things in this in a certain way and now he has time to really appreciate that he is very grateful for the people that have supported him and when he went to talk about being a high performing ceo he really focused in on the importance of of having good communication he spoke as he focused on the on the importance of understanding the strengths and weaknesses of the team and bringing them together and just making sure you have the right attitude when you are dealing with your team so you can sure you bring out the best in every single person. This was another fantastic episode. If you liked listening to the conversation, please share it with your friends and other people and ensure that we can continue to share the active CEO lifestyle with the ordinary don't belong. Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.